Bets. Heavens to Betsy. What do you do with things like this? The Bible has things like this. But one thing I've become convinced of as I've read this passage a number of times and read about this passage, and we've been soaking a bit in James this summer, is realizing that there's two different ways in this chapter 5 that he addresses people. In the beginning of chapter 5, he says, Now listen, you rich people. And then in verse 7, he says, Be patient then, brothers. As if he's talking to different people. Or in the NIV 2011, Be patient then, brothers and sisters. He's presumably in these first six chapters where he's saying to these rich people who have hoarded wealth in the last days, who have lived luxuriously in self-indulgence. They've gotten fat off the backs of workers that they've refused to pay. And they have, in a sense, been like a turkey who unwittingly has gorged himself right next to Thanksgiving. We got one guy who understood the joke. (laughs) James thinks of these not as Christians, but as something altogether different. And it helps me understand what he's up to because he is envisioning a real judgment coming on these people. So you wonder, what is he up to? And I think that we can get a picture of it. We listen to old Jack Beecham, who's telling his young nephew, Matt Feltner, in a story about an awful thing that this son-in-law of his has said to him, this banker from the big city who despises their farming life and has no regard and nothing but contempt for their hard work and their closeness to the soil. And he says this thing, he tells them what he's about, and he says this to Matt, I've hated to tell you what he said. I dislike to talk against my own very much, but I tell you to show you the kind of man you're not, and to give you some idea what it's worth to me that you're the man you are. He then touched Matty to give his words the direct weight and warmth of his hand as they were sitting and talking on that wagon. And I think that's a good picture of what James is hoping for, is he's saying here, people who have humbly accepted the word of truth which can save you, here, those of you who are being envied for jealously by God, who has put his spirit in us and who gives us more grace so that we become friends of his and don't pursue our friendship with the world, here, I am placing before you a picture of what I don't want you to be. Here I'm placing before you a picture of what you are not. And if you are a way of escape, and how important it is to me that you not be this. And so he lays out 
this picture of what he hopes the church will not be. People who hoard their wealth, people who live in luxury and self-indulgence, people who are indifferent to God, indifferent to others, and live as if they are the only ones on the planet. Now, of course, when we hear this, we realize and should realize that there are a lot of tendencies that we have in this, like a medical school student or a, a counseling student who starts to read about all the disorders and thinks when they're new at it, that they have them all. If you've had that experience, just open up some counseling manual, get on WebMD, start reading about something if you have a few symptoms, and you will be convinced that you have all of the diseases and all of the afflictions. Narcissistic personality disorder? Check. (laughs) Obsessive compulsive disorder? Correct. Pathological goofiness and ghoulishness? Yes. That's not a thing in the DSMV 4 or 5 or 8 or whichever one they're on now. And so we should see some tendencies here, but he's not talking to Christians, I don't think, in this passage. And I think most commentators don't think he is either. But he's giving Christians something to be afraid of. He's actually trying to align our longings. He's trying to educate our wants. And that's an important part of Christian discipleship. It's very Augustinian. Augustine came up with it. This idea that we want things very deeply, very badly. Now, most of us assume that what we want can't be altered. It is what it is. It must be obeyed. That what we long for cannot be shaped redirected. They just are. That's how most of the people we know live. The Bible would want to say, no, 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 no. You are this Herculean factory of want and longing. It's meant to drive you. And part of discipleship is aligning your wants to God's wants. That's how Jamie Smith puts it. And that's a good way to put it. So that we can, as the Bible would say, love what God loves and hate what God hates. And one of the things that James is holding up here is he's, he's holding up a mirror and saying, look, here's what's going to happen to the people you're tempted to aspire to be. Think about your life. Who are you wanting your life to be like the most? Who do you think you got gypped and they got your life? Now, when you think about that picture, does that person have a worse car than you or a better car? Do they have a better house or a worse house? Do they have a smoother complexion or a worse complexion? Do they have more hair or less hair? Better hair or worse? Do they come from a crummy family or an awesomer family? James knows, and isn't it interesting in a world like ours, where there are kids in here and grown-ups who may know more about Kim Kardashian than they know about their own grandma? That's overstatement, right? Maybe not. 
They know they've seen pictures of LeBron James's new house in Los Angeles that I think cost 82 gazillion dollars with a G. It has Disney World in the house. When you're in a celebrity culture where everybody knows everything, most of what we esteem, most of what we look up to, most of what we're constantly wrangling with in our own selves is how can I get and be and look like what they have and are and look like? And incidentally, it's not making anybody really that much happier. It's making a lot of people pretty miserable making most everyone feel pretty isolated and lonely. And so it's pretty interesting, isn't it, that James would say, um, <clears throat> you're tempted to look out at other lives and say, that's the life I want, that life of wealth and ease and influence and beauty and power, people who can say things and other people will do it for them, people who don't have to worry about what's going to happen if their transmission goes out or how they're going to pay for tuition or how they're going to deal with retirement. They don't worry about that stuff. Their life is a vacation. They don't take a vacation. They go to work from vacation from time to time. And that's who we esteem in very many cases. Now, Paul would say about that, when he holds up a negative example, he'd say many people in their love for wealth have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. They've let their longing for a better life stab and puncture themselves and their faith has drained out of them as if they were a sieve. James is holding up the judgment that will come. To the people we're tempted to admire and say, that's who we ought to be. And what is the problem? Why are they being judged? You could think it's because they're rich. Down with the rich. The rich stink. <laughs> but that's not what he says. He just tells them to weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on them. And then he says this. Here's what they've done. They have hoarded wealth in the last days. That's their first error. They've hoarded wealth in the last days. They've made a fatal mistake. You see, the hoarding of their wealth, that means that they have made it their business to receive and to acquire and to get. And then they made this fatal devastating error of thinking that all of it was meant for them and their family alone. It was meant to make their life more padded only. And in that sense, they have lived indifferently to God. They started thinking because they had all this stuff, God had been erased from their consciousness and they weren't thinking of God anymore. Jeffrey Sachs, who's an economist, at the University of Columbia, Columbia University Business School, was speaking at the Pontifical Institute about 
capitalism and economics. And he says that one of the problems for the rich, and in a big way, a lot of us are in this category, but, and you know people who are much richer, is that they live in a cloud of indifference. That wealth insulates them from normal problems and from normal issues and even from God. And that's why Jesus has this nauseating and irritating kind of squeak about the dangers of wealth. And most of us don't believe him. We just think he's a little bit hyperbolic. But it's this cloud of indifference that James is talking about. It's the, it is the sin of Sodom. You think you know what the sin of Sodom is, but the sin of Sodom in Ezekiel 16 is this. They were arrogant, and they were overfed, and unconcerned that those th- three things, a triad, a cyclone of indifference formed Arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They had too much, and in their too muchness, they got puffed up. And in their puffed upness, they just got unconcerned about anybody else. If nobody has enough, that's their fault. They didn't work hard enough. They were stupid. They were immigrants. And the Bible would say, don't let yourself be stuck in a cloud of indifference. And that's what happened. They hoarded their wealth in the last days. They didn't recognize the time they were in. They didn't recognize what their resources were for. And let's levitize this a minute. That's a word we just made up. Imagine you had yourself a birthday. That happens. Most of you have those, right? And you're in an office setting where there's a great deal of family environment. And you're, uh, the person responsible for such things comes to you and he says, Happy birthday, Bill! Because that is your name. And I don't know anyone here named Bill, so that's the name I'm using. Look at this birthday cake I got for you. It's enormous. It's going to be such an exciting celebration today at lunch. It's going to be amazing. Everybody's going to come together. We've got a whole thing planned out here. And Bill's like, boom, my favorite kind, ice cream cake. But you're Bill, and you see this ice cream cake, and you, uh, you take it off out back someplace. And like an MMA fighter, you take that sucker down. You make it cry for mercy until it does not exist anymore. Every bit of chocolate ice cream and crumbly cake around it is devoured. And so that when it's lunchtime, and they say happy birthday to Bill and they're singing you the song and everybody's excited to finally get some cake and break up the monotony of their day. Instead, you see smoke coming out of their ears and rage welling up in their hearts because the cake is gone. Where's the cake? And they realize, Bill, why do you have an oval and seemingly dripping chocolate stain on your shirt? Why are there crumbs falling off your cheek? Did you eat your own birthday cake? And they're filled with rage because this birthday cake, though it was for Bill, was not for Bill alone. The birthday cake was meant to be shared by everybody so that everybody got to participate in the joy of it. Everybody got to 
delight in the sugary confections and the joyous ice cream and cake. And what happens for these people that James is saying you don't want along to be like this is they have assumed that their goal was to get and to hang on, and that's it. That what they got was their own birthday cake, and that since it was their birthday, it was all for them. They didn't have to share it with anybody. It wasn't for anybody else. There was no other joy to multiply from it. They just kept it for themselves. And they were indifferent to the one who gave it to them. They failed to realize a critical part of this. You know, the scriptures would maintain, and the Reformed tradition teaches often when it comes to calling, a lot of people wonder, what's my calling? What am I supposed to do in the world? Well, one of the things about your calling is that gifts constitute a calling. So like, if you have a pickup truck, you might have a calling to help people move sometimes. Gifts constitute a calling. If you have a lawnmower, you might be called to help somebody mow their lawn sometimes. Do you understand how this works? And so if you have a good income, or you have some connections in the community, or you have some kind of social influence, or you have some kind of skills that are useful to people in the world... These have been given to you, not that you might keep them for the advantage of yourself and your family alone, like eating your own birthday cake. They've been given to you that they might benefit others. It's your calling. Wealth is a calling. And that calling, recognizing that God has handed it to us, recognizing that it's a trust, helps dissipate that cloud of indifference and it moves us to cry out to God when we have much. What should we do with this? You get a gift. You get an inheritance. You get an income. You get a bump in salary. You get a new amazing job. Lord, what does this mean? What blessings do you want to accrue to others as you bless us? You've heard of that. I think it, they came up with it in the 90s, that fake disease, but it's a real one called affluenza. It's a merger. I don't know what you call it when you do that. Somebody does. When you merge a word, you know, affluence with influenza. You merge them and you have affluenza. And it's an affliction that happens to people when they have too much stuff. And they are going after the acquisition of too much. And it makes them lethargic and feverish and self-concern and apathetic to people around them. Now, NPR did a story on affluenza, and their solution would be simple living. That's how you don't hoard wealth, you practice simple living. Well, that might be part of it, but that's not the main part of it. Here's what James would say. So they've been indifferent to God, they've hoarded wealth, they've not thought of it as a trust that they use for others. And then he goes on, Here's how they got the wealth. The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. This indifference to God, this cloud of indifference to God, has also become then a cloud of indifference to other people. And so it doesn't matter if you just want to practice simple living, like we're just going to consume less. Well, that's fine. That might be environmentally helpful, and that's a good thing. And you do realize that the more you own, the more it owns you. You've heard and read that book, if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want to 
glass of milk. And if you want yourself a boat, you'll get the boat, but then you're going to have to have a place to keep the boat, and you're going to have to have something to tote the boat, and then you're going to have to have a mechanic to fix the boat, and then you're going to feel like you've got to spend a lot of time on the boat, and then you've got to insure the boat, and then you've got to work more so that you can pay for all of that, and then you don't have time for the boat. So you need a house that's closer to the boat. <laughs> he who loves money never has enough, says Ecclesiastes. And so... It is the case that simple living is a good thing. Like diminishing our dependence on what, all the stuff we have is really great. But one of the things that the Bible is not mainly concerned with that for our sakes, but for the fact that other humans are hurt by our indifference. Because God's a delegator. This is how he's set it up. Like He's not entrusted phenomenal wealth to a small percentage of people so that a small percentage of people would live high on the hog and everybody else would would be miserable, but so that they would think of ways that others could participate in that. As Michael Rose and Robbie Holt say, that participate in the potluck of God. Everybody bringing some gift to the mix to enjoy together. And so it's not just getting simple, but it's recognizing what do my brothers need? What do the people around me need? What is my luxury costing the people around me? And in this case, they've just not paid their bills on time. And in a subsistence culture where you're making your daily wage to get the money you need for that day, if you work all day and you're counting on money that night and you don't get that money, then you don't eat. And a junior here can't get his diapers and his formula. And so, in a very real sense, the Bible is always getting down to, as they say, brass tacks when it comes to understanding God's grace to us. That it always has all these economic implications, very normal, everyday kinds of things. That the ethics of love will get into the ethics of your financial life and the way you run your business. If you owe somebody some money, well, it's unloving not to pay them. Especially if you can. If you can't, then that's a whole other situation. You need to talk about that. But don't withhold paying them. Pay them because they need the money. You owe it to them. That's what love does. And it's interesting, isn't it, that when Jesus comes to Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord his God to see. I'm just making this rhyme up as I think here. No, I went to Sunday school some. You know the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. George Costanza of a man, apparently. He was real interested to see Jesus, and Jesus, as he was up in a tree in a crowd, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down, because I'm coming to your house today. And the people are scandalized. What? You're coming to a tax collector's house? To an ambulance chasing lawyer's house? You're coming to his house? And he's so overjoyed. And whatever they've talked about, he's come to see himself as now connected to the Messiah and as a beneficiary of Abraham's blessings. And so he gets the whole Abrahamic call. You'll be a blessing, but not only that. I mean that you will be blessed, not only that, but you'll also be a blessing. And he says, Lord, look, here and now, I give away half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've wronged anybody, I'm going to pay them back four times over. 
His understanding of God's grace issued an economic application. John the Baptist says the same thing. When people, when he's saying, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, you brood of vipers. They say, what are we supposed to do? And he says these economic things, like, if you've got more clothes than you need, share them. If you're a tax collecting business, don't collect more than you're supposed to. Because these these ethics of trust and recognizing God's grace make us not indifferent to God and to others, but make us very aware of them. Very aware of how our actions and our spending and our pursuits affect the people around us. We start to get aware of it. We start to find ourselves calling out ourselves to the God that the poor cry out to. See these harvesters in these fields that are crying out to God who they have no resource but him. If you recognize that you do have resources and you realize God's given them to you and he doesn't want you surrounded in a cloud of indifference, you'll start crying out. We'll start crying out to him. Oh, Lord, what is this for? How might I use the education you've given me? How might I employ the relationships and opportunities I've been given for the sake of those who don't have them? People who have been disadvantaged for generations and we've We've advantaged off the back of that, like black people. People who have no clout. Lord, what should I do? Asking these questions is a big way to dissipate the cloud of indifference. If you find yourself today struggling to make ends meet, or at least struggling to make the ends of your life as it's construed meet. It's helpful to think about the fact that that, even that is not a bad thing for you. That God's training regimen, his CrossFit program for making Israelites no longer slaves but humans, for working the Egypt out of them and letting them become God's people, was not having them feast like kings and staying in the finest resorts, and walking around in Whole Foods where they were touching the vegetables and getting salads that cost $332. I got a $300 salad this week by accident. I was with Kathy. I got a salad at Whole Foods. That's why I'm so sleek. And Kathy was like, what is that, like five pounds? I was unfamiliar with how this thing worked. I was like, it's salad. And it had some chicken and some sweet potatoes and stuff too, but it's salad. And I was very embarrassed, and I was so worried when we went up there, and I was thinking, how are we going to get this small loan to cover this? But it was only $70, so it was a fine bit of spinach. An $18 salad, though. Heavens to Betsy. Are you kidding me? And it was a salad. Like, how much I paid for it didn't account for the fact that it was still a salad. And when I was done, I was just as unsatisfied as if I hadn't have spent the $18. But can you imagine how irritating it would be if, and for a lot of you it is in a way, if God had said, no, 
I won't be training you in abundance for a while. We're, we're going to have a desert existence, a deprivation existence. Um, here's what will happen in terms of your food. Um, you've heard of food deserts. Well, that's literally what we're in. We're going to do that. Um, and when you go to bed at night, you'll just, you'll just have some food laying on the ground in the morning when you wake up. And if you try to keep it, you'll get dysentery. You'll get maggots in the food. Uh, there'll be food coming that night, too. And then if you try to save some for later, if you try to hoard it and keep it, it's going to, it's going to sour and mold on you. Wouldn't you hate that? Because <sighs> it takes away your ability to plan and to count on. Well, you can count on God, which is what the goal of this thing is. But that's his training mechanism for them. He caused them to hunger so that he might feed them. And part of the problem when you don't have to count on God for basic stuff is that you don't learn how God can feed you when you hunger. You start thinking, if I can just get more stuff, then I'll be fed. And God wants to feed you his life. I close with this in this cloud of indifference that we're trying to bust up where James is saying, don't aspire to be a person who's so inundated with comforts that he can't see or think of God anymore so she can't see or think of the people around her anymore. I was listening to Brene Brown because I'm an American. And she's good. And she was telling the story of how she came to be a researcher. She said, I effectively became a researcher to avoid vulnerability. I wanted to keep a distance. I wanted to have control of my life. I wanted to have an exit strategy at all times. In other words, I didn't ever want to be too linked up to anybody, too close to anybody, too seen by anybody, too dependent on anybody. And so I'd taken all these classes in social work, and I got to master's program, and I had this class by an adjunct professor who we got in there, and the class was research, and the professor said, I don't know what all bunk they're teaching you in those other classes. And she didn't say bunk. I don't know what all bunk they're teaching you in those other classes, but we're not doing any of that here. Here, it's all about predictability and control. If you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. And she said, and I was in love. Because my whole life is about predictability and control. Oh, Finally, I can give myself to an approach where if it doesn't exist, I mean, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. That's how our world lives. That's why we go after money. You can measure money. You can measure the speltness of a person's body. You can measure the size of their house. But you can't measure things like trust or joy or God's grace coming to you in your weakness and standing beside And defending the one who is in need. You can't measure those things. And that's why it's so dangerous to pursue them. Because you start to think that the other things, the things that make for life, trust in God, reception from God, obedience to God, love for neighbor, humility before Christ. These things don't exist because you can't measure them. You can't put them on a spreadsheet. A financial calculator will do you no good. The present value of your future faith cannot be calculated. 
numerically. So we have to seed predictability and surrender our demand for control. But we're doing it to the Christ who said to Zacchaeus, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And today, you are a child of Abraham. He came after Zacchaeus who just wanted to see him. And he made him his and he's made us his. And now we have this privilege as children of Abraham by faith. Forgiven, cleansed, kept. That we are people who have been the recipients of enormous gifts. And he says, will you co-labor with me? Not in a cloud of indifference, but in a world, a carousel of compassion where you share what's been given to you in all kinds of ways and you co-labor with me as we walk through this world until I come. James wants you to keep God, his son Jesus Christ, in view so that you are not falsely lulled to sleep in a cloud of indifference. Let's trust him together. Amen. Let's stand together and we will respond by singing, Jesus cast a look on me.